It's good to be with you this evening. It's great to see lots of people here and no masks. It's great. Uh, Just in case you haven't met me, so John's my name. Uh, I'm regularly down at Winmalee, part of the congregation there, but also part of the preaching team and so here from time to time. Um, I, I am just getting over a cold. I have had the mandatory test and it's just a cold. Well, at least not, not COVID, whatever else it is. Uh, but you'll excuse me if my voice is a bit gravelly. And we've come to a look at this chapter, Leviticus 16, when Rod introduced it uh, last week at Springwood Morning Church. Uh, he said it's one of the most important chapters of the Bible. In lots of ways it is, but it's funny. It's one of the very important chapters that's also a particularly obscure chapter and probably you know we're used to some of the ideas in it those of us who've been christians for a while and yet we've probably never perhaps looked at the passage itself in detail uh, so there's lots to to see in here this evening uh, if you've got your bible there it'd be good to have leviticus 16 open and let's ask god to help us as we come to hear his word let's pray our heavenly father we thank you for your word, you think, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us and teach us and instruct us and encourage us. Uh, even through this details of a ceremony that has finished a long time ago. Uh, speak to us now, be at work among us by your spirit. And especially we ask that you would help us to see Christ, to see him more clearly and to understand Uh, more of what you've done for us through him. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to think of a time when you have made somebody angry. And you knew why they were angry. You know, it wasn't one of those times when you're sort of scratching your head and thinking, I wonder what's going on here. You knew why. And what's more, you knew they were right. You realised that turn the situation around If they'd done to you what you'd done, you'd be angry at them. You've let them down, perhaps you insulted them, you lied, you cut corners, and you know that they're right. You feel ashamed, you can't really look them in the eye. You're guilty. Can you think of that time? Now, probably lots of us are thinking of times when we don't really want to tell other people around us now about what happened. Uh, But let me tell you about one of my times. It's long enough ago that I think I can share this story. Uh, When I was back when I was a student, in order to make a bit of extra money, uh, I I was collating folders for my sister-in-law. She ran a training business and ran training courses and She'd pay me to she'd deliver the papers and I'd put them together folders. Anyway, I came up with this idea that she could pay me the money for the folders as well and I'd buy the folders and I figured I could source cheaper folders than she was paying for and I'd just increase my margin uh, a little bit. So we did that and uh, she came around to collect the first batch of folders and the folders I'd chosen weren't right. And that was really my own carelessness and trying to make a bit of extra profit. And she was furious. And I remember standing in the front yard. Um, The training course was happening the next day. There was nothing I could do to fix it up. 
trying to say sorry, but you know, didn't really mean much at that point. Uh, what, you know, what could I possibly do now? Have you been in that kind of situation? It's appalling, isn't it? And we have that sort of problem with God. And how much worse is that? We've done the wrong thing. We're guilty. We should be ashamed. God is, you know, I think we can say, appalled. He's angry at what we've done. And Leviticus 16 shows us the reality of that problem. It, it shows us the threat of God's holiness. And it shows us what God does about it when we can't do anything. So after, over the last few weeks, we've been tracing the story of the Bible. We've got some artwork up here that helps us remember it and the, and the, uh, the chart. Uh, we've seen the story of God made people to live in fellowship with him, in communion with him, to enjoy his presence uh, in a good world. But their rebellion means they've lost that. It's brought God's curse. They've been thrown out of the garden. And in order to restore blessing in place of curse, God called Abraham's family and he promises them a land where they'll live in his presence and know him. But of course, they end up as slaves in Egypt. And uh, God rescues them from Egypt and brings them to Mount Sinai. And there he tells them that they're his own special loved people. They're going to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And they're going to live with him as their Lord. His presence will be among them. They will know him. And that's going to happen through the tabernacle. I'll get you to put the slide up. This sacred tent, this movable temple. And there they're going to be able to worship him and know him. So you see what's happening. What was lost way back in Eden because of Adam and Eve's sin is now being returned and restored. Life with God given back to the people of Israel. Adam and Eve sent out of the garden away from the Lord's presence, but now, well, it's not so much they're returning to the Lord's presence as the Lord's presence is returning to Israel. They've been freed as slaves, freed from Egypt, but far more importantly, they've been freed for worship and knowing God and living in his presence. And so most of the book of Exodus, of Certainly the second part of the book of Exodus is all about building the tabernacle. God gives Moses instructions about how he's to build this, this tent. And then we told about him collecting all the materials and organising Israel and, the, and the, the tabernacle gets built. And really the climax of the book of Exodus is in the last few verses of the whole book. Uh, if you've got your Bible there, turn back to Exodus 40. It's just a few pages back from Leviticus 16. And verse 34, the tabernacle's all built and then we read, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Lord is present. 
And not just you know, way off up in Mount Sinai, but in the tabernacle, in the middle of the, uh, the, the camp of Israel, filling the tent with his glory. He's with his people to show them his wonder and to bless them. But the presence of a holy God brings a problem, and really more than a problem, a threat to them. And it's hinted at even there. Uh, we're told Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled in and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The Lord is holy, glorious and majestic, far, far greater than Moses, far more splendid and important and magnificent than his people and perfectly good and pure and right. And Israel are meant to be a holy nation. They're meant to be set apart for the Lord and to live for him and to be like him. But they aren't. They don't live with God, live for God consistently. In fact, before the tabernacle is built, before they've even got the instructions of the tabernacle, you might remember the story of them worshipping the golden calf. They don't live for God. And so the presence of the Lord among them is a blessing, but also a threat. God's character is love and holiness, perfection and absolute purity. He is good and he's repulsed by evil and he hates sin. And the Bible gives us all these different images of the difference between God and disobedience to him and wickedness and evil Uh, There's there's the picture of height. God is exalted far above human sin. There's the picture of distance. Um, When Israel at Mount Sinai, they can't come near the the mountain. Even in the tabernacle, they can't really come in. Uh, There's the picture of light, which will blind you if you come too close. Picture of fire. That burns up all that's evil. We'll see a bit more about fire in a moment. There's the graphic picture of vomiting that the Lord spits out that which he cannot stand and that which is against him. And of course, anger. God as the just God has a determined fury against anything and anyone who denies him. Now, of course, sometimes people will challenge that sort of idea and say, how could a loving God reject and destroy and be angry against people? Um, It's a strange view of life, really, isn't it? To, uh, in some ways, implied in that question. Because what it assumes is that that the opposite of love, or that anger is the opposite of love. But, of course, anger is not the opposite of love. The opposite of love is indifference. The opposite of love is saying, well, I don't care. Uh, But if you're a parent and you love your child and someone threatens them, you will be and you should be angry. And if at some time your child rejects you, you'll be hurt and you'll be angry. Because you love, not instead of loving them. And, and so if you, there's a person who thinks to themselves, this just seems outdated. How can we go on about God being angry at sin? Surely 
You know, God can cope with a few human slip-ups. Then they've got no idea about the holiness of God, nor how much he loves his world, or the real horror of people made for him turning against him. Uh, the next book of the Bible, Exodus, brings us to Leviticus, a book we're looking at particularly this evening, uh, is all about the tabernacle and worship and priests. And the one of the incidents that occurs in that in Leviticus chapter 10 is that uh, Aaron, Moses' brother, has become the high priest working in the tabernacle. And his sons, Nadab and Abihu, go into the tabernacle with uh, fire and incense to worship the Lord, but they're not following the Lord's instructions. We're told in chapter 10 they offered unauthorised fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And they themselves are destroyed by fire that comes out of the Holy of Holies. And, and Moses immediately after that reports, the Lord says, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy in the sight of all people. I will be honoured. There's the threat of holiness in a, to an unholy people. And that brings us then to Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement, where we see so graphically what God does about sin and rebellion and guilt to make it possible for us to be in his presence. Now, notice the connection between uh, what's happened already in Leviticus and this passage here. It begins, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. So we've seen what happens if people approach the Lord, but not his way. Uh, and the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. So Aaron can come into the Lord's presence, but he must come the Lord's way. And that is the way that we'll deal with sin. And of course, the key word there, been used lots of times already, even in those first few verses, is atonement. It's made up of those little English words, at, one-ment, to bring people at one, to reconcile them, to bring them back together. Uh, it talks there about the atonement cover on top of the ark. That's the, the older Bibles, English Bibles often call that the mercy seat. And the word atonement runs all the way through this passage. This is describing the festival of the atonement day. Uh, the word translates a, a Hebrew word, which means perhaps something like cover over. And when you cover over sin, it means removing wrong and its consequences. It means it includes cleansing and purifying. Uh, the idea of expiation, of paying the price that needs to be paid. And also the need, the, another kind of long technical word, propitiation, which is to deal with the, the anger, got to deal with God's anger towards sin. Now, all of that's included in this idea of 
atonement, removing God's rejection of sinners by cleansing them and paying for them and covering over their rebellion and turning away his anger. And it takes blood and death and a life given in the place of the person for whom atonement is made. And we see that all in, on the atonement day, the most solemn and serious day in Israel's calendar. These are instructions that have been given to Aaron as the first high priest, but we're told they're to be continued each year uh, for perpetuity. It's a careful ceremony full of symbolic meaning, teaching Israel about themselves and about God. It does more than teach, but it certainly teaches. Now, reading the instructions and, and just working out exactly what's going on is not easy. You may have thought that as Annette was reading. What's going on here? I, I think generally the way the chapter is structured is verses uh, 3 to 10 give you a general outline of what should happen. And then verses 11 through to 28 give you more detail. And so that's why you feel like, oh, I've, which bits are being repeated here? Because I think it's that sort of pattern. So let me walk you back through what I think is what happens and think about what it means. So the first step was that the, the priest had to get sacrificial animals, a bull as a sin offering for him and his family, and his family are the priests, so it's for the priests, and a ram who's going to be a sin offering for the people, the rest of the people, and two goats. So he has to have those four animals, and he brings them into... Uh, into the, the entrance place and really then, I think, out into the entrance area, that, that outer courtyard. Uh, and he is the only one who's to be allowed in the tent of meeting. As he does this, he's to do this alone. He's already ceremonially clean because as a priest he has to be ceremonially clean. But now he's about to enter the most holy place and so he has to wash again. And then he puts on special clothes that he only wears once a year for this ceremony, dressed in simple, plain linen. Uh, just get to put up the next slide. This is what the priest normally dressed in. This was his kind of day-to-day -day work, uh, day-to-day work clothes. Uh, you know, quite decorated and uh, impressive and, and splendid. Uh, but the atonement day is not a day for him to show off at all. It's not a day to draw attention to his dignity or his splendour. Just the opposite. He's about to approach the holy God on behalf of an unholy people. And so instead he just wears the plainest linen undergarment and tunic and robe and sash and um, turban. And then he enters into the tent. Next slide. Um, so this covered over area made up of the holy place. That's the front section and the most holy place uh, at the back. And he first of all offers the bull as a sin offering for himself and for all of the priests. Uh, and God accepts the life and death of the sacrificial animals instead of his. And you remember Nahab and Abihu? That's what would happen if he was to approach the Lord without 
the proper sacrifice. But the Lord accepts the animal instead of Aaron. And so he offers the bull and cuts the bull's throat and it dies and collects the blood. And then he's to go from doing that in the holy place into the most holy place through that curtain. Uh, and uh, next slide, he'll go in in front of the ark, the ark of the covenant. And there, between those cherubim, those angels, is the throne of God. Uh, this is the most intense expression of the presence of God among Israel. And as he goes in, he bows and as he comes through the curtain, offers up incense, clouds of incense, uh, up in front of the ark, the, the, representing the prayers and the worship of the people of Israel. But also we're told in verse 13 to obscure the ark so he won't see it. He's put incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. And having done that, he's to take the blood of the bull and take it into the most holy place and sprinkle it onto the ark and then seven times in front of the ark to make atonement for Israel in God's presence. And then he comes back out and he takes uh, the goat. I think I forgot a step earlier that the two goats, he has to cast lots and one of the goats is chosen as the scapegoat. Come back to that in a moment. The other one to be the sacrifice for the people. And so that animal is killed. The blood's collected. And again, Aaron goes into the most holy place and the same thing. Once onto the ark, seven times the blood out in front of the ark to make atonement for people. And we're told in verse 16 that this is comprehensive. This deals with what Israel have done. Verse 16, in this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. Then he comes back out from the most holy place into the holy place, which is where the regular sacrifices are offered day in and day out. And he takes the two lots of blood, the goat and the bull, and mixes them together. And then there's all these places around the altars and before the tent, before the, the curtain, in the most holy place that, again, he has to sprinkle blood to purify it and cleanse the area and make atonement so that Israel can come before the Lord. And then he takes the second goat, goat uh, what's called the scapegoat. That's the English word that's kind of been made up for this goat. Uh, it really comes from the same word as we've got our, word, our modern word, escape. And this is the goat that gets away or goes away, the word that the goat gets taken away. And he's to put his hands on that goat and confess all the sins of Israel. So he's to confess all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. And so the scapegoat 
carries out from the camp of Israel their sins and takes them away. It's a bit like in Psalm 103, the psalmist says, as far as east is from the west, so far has the Lord removed my sins. It's that, that sort of picture. And so the sacrifices deal with the guilt of sin and with God's anger and the blood cleanses the tabernacle and the altar and the scapegoat takes away the wickedness and evil and all of that is to make atonement. And then Aaron washes again as he moves back into his normal role and he puts on his regular high priestly garments and then he offers Again, the sort of regular daily sacrifices of atonement that he's to offer for the priests and for the people. And so the regular worship of the people of Israel continues on. And all of this is to bring atonement, to remove guilt and stain and uncleanness of Israel's sin, to pay the penalty for wrong, to pay the price of redemption, to turn away God's anger where the Lord accepts the life and death of the sacrificial animals instead of the lives of sinful Israel and removes their sin from them and takes it away. It's a very dramatic lesson, isn't it? Sin stops them from approaching God. God's holiness bars the way for them. And his holy anger means death for sinners. And God provides the means for atonement. And when God does, then his people can come into his presence and worship him and receive his blessing. And so for years and centuries, the day of atonement, the other sacrifices continued on. Now, like everything in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement doesn't make sense by itself. We really only understand it in light of uh, its fulfilment. Because it's a shadow of a greater reality. It's the indication of a bigger pattern. It's a promise of one true, final, complete sacrifice, which would take place in the real temple. And the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that we read from picks that up. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, uh, thinking about the Day of Atonement, using what we've just been thinking about in Leviticus 16, says, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, that is not made with human hands, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of bulls, of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining redemption. Oh, you could look at Jesus' death and think of it as a terrible waste. Here's a Young man with so much promise, a charismatic leader, full of wisdom. Uh, the crowds love him, uh, but he loses his life in the sort of chaotic politics of first century Judea, partly because of his own crazy mission of going to Jerusalem where he knows his opponents are. He said, what a 
terrible martyrdom. But Jesus didn't think of it as a waste. Long before that, Jesus had said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And on that night before he died in the Last Supper, he says to his disciples, this bread, this is my body, which will be given for you. This is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' death was his loving obedience to the Father. It was his love for us dying as our sacrifice. Just like in the Old Testament, except so much bigger and so much more complete, God provides atonement. The Father gives the Son. The Son of God gives himself. Jesus' death is the atonement for the holy love of God. When he died, he faced our, uh, God's anger at our rejection of him. He bore the burden we should have borne. He, like the scapegoat, is cast away. All for us. You know how on a, on a nice sunny day you can uh, get a magnifying glass and you, know, you take it outside and if you tilt it the right way, you can focus the, the, the rays of the sun down if you've got some paper or some dry leaves. It doesn't take long before the, that hot point bursts into flame. Something like that was happening as Jesus died. The, 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 the rays of God's holiness focus in on him. And he dies instead of us. Like the lamb in the temple, the goat and the bulls, he stands in our place and is destroyed by God's anger. And his blood is what makes us clean. That's God's holy love, his holy rejection and hatred of sin and the love that bears the cost and absorbs his own anger and keeps us safe. And, and so God remains God. Um, not easy going about sin, pure and holy, and he remains committed to his people. It's no wonder at all, is it, that Christians have come back again and again to, of course we do naturally, to meditate on the cross. So atonement means that we can come to God with confidence. Asked you earlier to think about some incident when someone was angry at you and you know how that guilt and, and, and shame stops us relating well to people. You know, if, it's your, if it's my guilt and your anger, I just want to avoid you. I don't want to look at you. I don't want to come near you. Um, and how much worse to think of our guilt and God's anger. But, but as we do we must also think even more of Christ's atonement. And so we can approach God with confidence, uh, more fully and more completely than even Aaron could and the people of Israel could in the, in the tabernacle. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, after a long discussion about the atonement and the day of atonement and how Christ is the priest and the sacrifice 
The writer to Hebrews in, verse, uh, in chapter 10, verse 19, says to us, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. There's the confidence that we can have. Let us draw near to God, not because we're good, but because of Christ's once for all full and final atoning death. Uh, there's no further need for sacrifices. God doesn't demand that you give something up to pay him back so that he will receive you back. God doesn't seek your suffering or your money or your possessions in order to pay for your forgiveness. When we have the Lord's Supper together, we're not offering him a sacrifice. We're remembering and sharing again in the sacrifice which has already been completed for us. When God calls you, he doesn't say to you, obey me first, meet my demands, then I'll have you back. He says, uh, he makes you mine, he makes you his, he offers you what Christ, God has, what he has done in Christ, and then teaches you to obey him. And so we're to come, come confidently, draw near to God. There's no need for fear or shame or guilt. It's dealt with whatever it is that lies in the past. Jesus' death is enough and, and more than enough. Let us draw near to God. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die.